Hey everybody, welcome to the second episode of the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact, and I'm here with our President, Andrew Seligson. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Emily. How are you? Good. Having a good morning? Uh, I am indeed. There was some uh, political excitement going on on the streets here in Boston this morning, so it got the juices flowing. Ooh, I like that. So we have a really cool second episode, I think, and we're here this morning just to talk a little bit about that. Later in the episode, I'll be talking with J.R. Jameson, Indiana Campus Compact uh, Executive Director and my co-host. But for now, we're just going to talk a little bit about our theme and our guest. So I was really excited to interview our guest. Lena Distilio is the Director of the Center for Community Engaged Teaching and Research at Duquesne University. But she's also been doing quite a bit of work with you, right, Andrew? Yeah, we have been doing, I think, some great work together, mostly because Lena does great work. So, um, you know, we at Campus Compact have been exploring a professional credentialing program for community engagement professionals. Uh, We see a need out there to help people get connected to the best research and the best experience-based knowledge about how to do this work well. And... We think there's a real opportunity to connect people with that, especially early in their careers. And so we have been doing research on a bunch of aspects of that, but a big piece of it has been research that Lena has led along with a group of graduate students through Irslice on, you know, what what are the competencies for doing great work mm-hmm. in this field? So, and it's been a great project. Yeah, so I talked to her uh, quite a bit about that, about her trajectory as a community engagement professional, and uh, you and JR had a little bit of conversation as well. So if this is your first time listening to us, you can go back. We have a first episode where we interviewed Timothy Eatman and talked a little bit more about our backstories. And we also have an introductory episode if you want to just learn a little bit more about what the podcast is and what the Compact Nation is. So you can go back and find those things in your podcast feed. But we hope you'll stick with us and listen to the rest of the episode. So my name's Lena, (laughs) and I direct a community engagement center. Um, Specifically, it's the Center for Community Engaged Teaching and Research at Duquesne University. Duquesne is a mid-sized private research university in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We've got about 10,000 students. And I've been at Duquesne for a long time, um, 12 years. And uh, I've had different kinds of positions while at this university, all of them in the vein of community or civic engagement, ranging from a service learning coordinator to my position today. And uh, in addition to that, I'm a scholar in residence with Campus Compact, and I really enjoy being involved in our different associations and organizations that promote this work across the country and so have good affiliations with a couple of different orgs and uh, get to work with this phenomenal team of research fellows who have been working on the Community Engagement Professionals Project for Campus Compact. I'm also a mom and I'm a wife and a proud dog owner. (laughs) So, you know, that all matters too. And uh, I'm just thrilled to be here, thanks. Awesome. Well, I'm excited you agreed to do it. We have gotten to connect a few times over the last couple of years. And for one thing, I think your voice is really soothing, to be honest. So I think a podcast is a good format for you. (laughs) Great. You know, if engagement doesn't work out for me, maybe I should switch into radio personality. Yes, I agree. I agree. But it would probably be like the midnight shift, right? So it was like (laughs) tuning in to the smooth listening sounds of engagement radio. 
<laughs> I think it's a, a, like a Delilah thing, maybe that you have. Oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you mentioned your work, your research work around community engagement professionals. So, what does that mean to you? What do you think a community engagement professional is? The way that we're defining it in our work, in our in our particular research study, are those folks in higher education who have formal responsibilities to support the work of community engagement at a college or university. And so, you know, these are folks, they might have their own ways of being engaged, and and many do, but a substantive amount of their time is spent building and delivering the support for faculty and students who are directly engaging with communities or who are involved in civic work. And so the way that I define that is that these are folks that have this unique set of responsibilities around supporting others. One thing that, you know, it's important to talk about, I don't really see a dichotomy between community engagement professionals and faculty or community engagement professionals and students. I I think we're all sort of in this enterprise together, but I'm excited that we're paying attention to this group, that we're actually looking at these folks and trying to understand not only what they do, what they could be doing, why they do it, you know, who they are, what makes them tick. I, I think it's all really exciting. One of the things that I've heard people talking about is the idea of a second generation of community Mm -hmm. engagement professionals. A new Mm -hmm. guard versus the old guard um, is maybe another way I've heard it described. I don't know if that is the best language for it. Do you see evidence of that being true? What's your sense of, um, I guess, sort of the wave we're in around community engagement professionals? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't like the framing of new guard versus old guard. I don't see that in the work and I don't see that in our colleagues. What I do see is a different way into the work than maybe those who have come before us. So when I talk with folks that have been in this work for 40 years, 30 years, and who, again, kind of fit this interpretation of people who have formal responsibilities for supporting others in the work on a campus, right? these are these are pioneers, right? These are in and, and to like quote the book, right? The, the pioneers of service learning. But these are people who were breaking ground, making things up as they went based upon their knowledge and their firsthand experience, having to speak well of this work with their university administrators, speak well of this work with their community partners. It's just they were carving it, right? They were building it. They were the architects, if you will. And Marshall Welch and John Saltmarsh had done a study of community engagement centers amongst Carnegie classified institutions. And the phrasing second generation actually comes from their work. So they noted that there has been a shift in these centers and what the centers do, whereas these centers or offices used to be um, really primarily responsible for nuts and bolts logistic implementation of student volunteerism, let's say, or very um, traditional service learning we now see a much broader set of responsibilities around the civic enterprise of the campus. And that takes different kinds of ways of working, it takes different skills, right? Um, So that's where the the language is coming from, this shift from first to second generation. And in fact, our work has embraced that language of second generation engagement, second generation engagement professional. But the reason why I pushed back on this idea of, of verses, right, first, second, what have you, it actually, we're, I think that this group of folks who are CEPs currently are heavily influenced by those that came before them. And what we have, though, now is such a track record of experience. We have got so many models for how to do this work and do it well. We have a base of research. We have um, folks, again, who have been in this work for 30, 20, 30, 40 years who are scholars. And so they've looked really critically at their work. And we need to learn from that. 
And so my biggest critique, actually, when we think about this first generation, second generation, is that there are folks that are brought into the work cold who have not had the opportunity to learn from those who have come before them or to look at the research that we have or the big bodies of practice that we have. And sometimes they're coming into jobs for which the job description was written by somebody that's not at all familiar with this work. And so that job description and that person begin their work or it leads them to begin their work in that first generation. And so they're looking at nuts and bolts and volunteerism and um, and sort of this sort of narrow framing, right? And we have come so far, we, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, we need to have a recognition for this history and a recognition for what we know and a recognition that there are mentors and places that we can learn about this work and a recognition that the job descriptions need to be written a little differently if what we truly want is a second generation of practice. I think there's no doubt that more women are attracted to this work than men, right? Um, and in particular, you know, white women actually, you know, that's sort of who, who dominates this work. What does that mean for this profession? Mm. Is that something we should be trying to change? What, you know, how, what does that mean in terms of how we operate? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It's, it's a topic of great interest to me that I don't think we know very much about. Yeah. Well, I think that's just it. We don't know much about this. So, mm-hmm. and it's very similar to the lack of research gen- generally on community engagement professionals. When we were doing our study, there were so few empirical sources that actually commented on the role of what might be called staff. So research on the, you know, how gender plays into this work has been done um, on students and on faculty, but we don't have a lot on community engagement professionals, and that's fairly unsurprising. And I think some of the work um, has pointed to gender influencing the frequency of involvement of students in service learning and volunteerism in high school and in college. Um, there's, There's some literature that tells us that our female students express greater support for the inclusion of service learning in their coursework, or that they get involved with their student organizations at a higher rate. Um, Certainly the work on faculty has talked about the the fact that our identities influence the degree to which we adopt community engagement scholarship, um, more so even than the availability of institutional support. And I think Elaine Ward's work on women's ways of engagement is really helpful here. I mean, she was primarily focused on faculty, but um, I found that very, very interesting. And, and it lays out this qualitative understanding of how women engage. So there's also this other aspect to it, which is if you see this work as a helping profession, there's been lots of uh, information or generation, or excuse me, research on how gender influences people's uh, pursuit of helping professions, right? What, I, what it all comes down to is we don't know a lot and we need to know more. Um, I think it would be really important for us to think about why community engagement professionals come to the work what is it that's driving them? Is it similar to some of the, the factors that influence faculty and students? Is it not? Um, but we just don't know. And again, as is the theme with everything about community engagement professionals, what we don't know and what we don't attend to has unintended consequences. And you've just pointed those out. So we have this great number of white women that are in the work, and we're not quite sure why they are coming into the work. Is it that we have created more receptive environments for white women than anybody else? Or is it that um, these these women, uh, more so than their male counterparts, are willing to work in institutions where the support isn't very formal or high? Um, but we need to kind of we need to attend to this. So I I want to put a plug in for somebody doing some research here, and starting to ask these questions of community engagement professionals, and then asking the corollary questions around. So what influence is this having? Because um, we can 
propose to know what that might be, but we're not sure yet. So I think this is my final question for you. Okay. Um, and it, it's a two-parter, as okay. many of my questions are. <laughs> what is one prediction you have for this field of community engagement professionals? And then the second part is what's one dream? I don't think that the structures and roles that community, community engagement professionals currently occupy will be the same in 15 years because of the changing nature of the work. Mm -hmm. And my dream is that we will know that that's gonna change and be open to it. I think we have this tremendous mosaic of folks that are involved in this work. Some of them are community engagement professionals. There's so many others, ranging from our community advocates and community partners and community leaders to our students, to our faculty, to our university administrators, to our policymakers, to our association and organization staff, um, you know, there's this beautiful mosaic that we're involved in. I hope that we evolve this practice and deepen this work in such a fashion that in 15 years we look back and we're like, oh, wasn't that fun? That project was interesting. And that's, you know, part of our part of our history and part of our blueprint. But look at where we've come from and where we're going. That's my prediction. All right, my friend. I'm grateful. Okay, thanks, Lena. Thanks. Good to talk to you. All right, we'll talk Bye. again. So this is question time with the Prez. Emily interviewed Lena Destilio. So I came up with a few questions to ask you. Thinking about Lena's interview and in the last few years, the community engagement professional, the practitioner scholar, these are two roles that have emerged in the field of higher education and community engagement. Lena talked about second generation practitioner scholars and community engagement professionals and how those who came before in the first generation really were grassroots and kind of built their professions around them. But we're now seeing the shift into what is called in the research second generation practitioners and community engagement professionals and how they're shaping the field as well, but learning from those who came before. And that connection is so important. 10 years from now, the work will look very different than it does now. And community engagement professionals, practitioner scholars will evolve even more, and maybe we'll have more of a prominent role in higher education community engagement. But we're starting to see this third generation bubble up, and they too, like those before them, will learn from the second generation. But as we think about this 10-year 10 10-year 10 gap that happens, how will Campus Compact need to evolve to support that third generation of community engagement professionals? I think one of the challenges, and as, especially in the context of thinking about developing a professional credential for community engagement professionals. I've had lots and lots of conversations with individuals who've been working in this field for a very long time, those who are newer to it, students uh, who are, uh, you know, interested in possibly pursuing a career in this direction. And, you know, in addition, we've done much more formal research, but I've learned a lot from these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I think, you know, one of the tensions we face as the field takes greater shape, which I think is part of what's happening, that we're moving, as you were describing, from this very, almost what I would think of as a kind of artisanal approach to this work, where individuals are really crafting new kinds of experiences and new kinds of opportunities for students and campuses, new kinds of partnerships. They look very different from each other on individual campuses. They're 
infused with the creativity and the boldness of the people who are doing the work with the relationships that uh, happen to have formed, et cetera. And I think that has been incredibly valuable to our field. We also, I think, can see that it's not entirely scalable, that if we know that now thousands of people are doing this work, if we want to ensure that it's always done, for example, in ways that are consistent with ethical standards about how institutions should engage with communities, and we want to ensure that research that has been done actually informs the practice about what is effective for students, for communities, that we need more consistent ways of providing people with learning opportunities. But I think the challenge is to do that in ways that recognize that unlike many other practices in the world, we have to consistently be sensitive to realities on the ground in the distinctive communities in which we work. So that kind of the craft approach can never fully disappear. And I think with the third generation who are many of whom, you know, will have experienced pretty substantial programs as the form of community engagement that they encounter as undergraduates. In other words, they won't have come of age in the, the, the era of the kind of solo grassroots practitioner out there blazing a trail. Many of them will come through pretty established programs to continue to infuse them with the idea that this work is requires tremendous personal knowledge of the people around you. It requires careful listening. It requires really reading the landscape of relationships and realities in the particular communities that you're connected to. I think that's a big challenge for us. And as we've thought about how to build this credentialing program, that's been one of the questions that we've been focused on. So just as an example, we are really thinking about, and this is, you know, the program is still very much in development, but we've been thinking about how can mentoring play a critical role in the program so that this is not about kind of just passive experiences people have in groups, that there is, first of all, experiential dimensions to the program, but also that there are relational components to it, and specifically with people who have been doing the work over a number of years. So there's, we don't have a sort of specific answer yet about what that'll look like. And as I said, we're bringing on a person who will play a key role in driving that forward. But those kinds of ideas about, first of all, how do we benefit from intergenerational links? And also really, how do we retain the spirit that I think is embodied in that first generation? Those are questions that are very much on the table for us. I want to shift gears just slightly. I want to go back to something Lena talked about in her interview. She talked about how she originally went to school for community health counseling, but obviously that shifted over time based on experiences she had, civic mentors in her life. That has now gotten her to where she is today. You and I had a conversation one time offline. No one else was really listening about your past, and you shared that you were once a sports writer for a children's publication. Is that true, and can you talk a little bit about that? That is essentially true. I was a reporter uh, with a broad portfolio for Scholastic News, the uh, newspaper for elementary school students. I wrote for the fourth through sixth grade editions. This was my first job after college. I was living in New York City. Scholastic was based down in the, the West Village or right, right on Broadway, actually, right by NYU. And uh, 
a, a, it was a great neighborhood to work in and a fun job. And yeah, I wrote all the sports stories and I wrote, uh, stories on science. And I think I wrote stories on science because my understanding of science was at about the same level as my audience. So I was perfect for that. Um, I would occasionally get to write a story on politics, but usually my editor would hand it back to me and say, uh, Andrew, you do not write for the New York Times. <laughs> you have to simplify this for 10 year olds. Uh, I'd say, okay, fair enough. Um, and you know, I, so it was a, first of all, it was a very fun job. Um, it was interesting. I was writing about all kinds of different things. I love sports. So the sports stuff was fun. The science was consistently interesting and very challenging to me. It was actually one important part of that. It was, I found out that you can just pick up the phone and call any uh, scientist or, I mean, it turns out any academic and say, I want to understand what you do your research on. And they will tell you because they love it so much and care about it that the, the idea that maybe you're going to share that information with other people is so exciting to them that, you know, I spent hours on the phone with some entomologist at Cornell for a story I wrote on fire ants. And he just wanted me to understand his research. So that was, that was really exciting. And I have, always remembered that. It was um, a tremendously valuable writing experience. You know, you I had just come out of college where sometimes you are misled uh, into believing that you're supposed to try to sound sophisticated and complex. And when you write for 10-year-olds, you don't think that. You realize you need to write directly and clearly, and not in a way that insults their intelligence, but in a way that recognizes where they are. And I think that's been the best thing for my writing was having that experience. I uh, have, yeah, I am extremely focused on trying to write in ways that are accessible. So then I went on to graduate school in political theory where that uh, desire for accessibility is challenged at every turn. But I tried to hold on to the writing lessons that I had learned. And I had some very good editors I worked with who were great at, at, uh, at helping to think about how to do that well. So, yeah, that was a, that was an excellent kind of step along the way as I considered where I was headed next in my education and in my professional pursuits. I got a ton of reading done in the couple of years that I worked there and decided that pursuing political theory was the next thing I wanted to do. Thinking about your role at Scholastic, you talked a bit about how it helped shape your writing. What was one other lesson you've carried forward into your current role as president of Campus Compact that you learned from your first role writing for Scholastic? Let me put it this way. I think I learned that all of us want to be valued as contributors to a larger effort. And it doesn't matter what the professional setting is, what the product is, or the outcome that you're seeking. Anybody who's working as part of a team wants to be valued as part of that team. So I showed up. I didn't know anything about how you put together a newspaper. It wasn't, you know, I, I had actually written a little bit in high school. I was in the marching band. Uh, and so uh, somehow it got set up. I don't remember even how this happened, but I started, I would write the, you know, the brief report on the high school football game in my local newspaper because I was there anyway, essentially. Uh, and so that was my only exposure to journalism. I wasn't part of the high school newspaper or, you know, a newspaper in college. Uh, I didn't really know how any of it worked. But still, when you show up, 
you kind of want to be heard. I mean, hopefully you recognize that there are other people around you who know a ton more. And I was, as I said, really lucky to work with some just very sharp, interesting, thoughtful people who were very skilled in this process. But, you know, when we start talking about what might be an interesting story idea, uh, I appreciated from the beginning that my voice was part of that conversation. There were other conversations where I knew that I really didn't have anything useful to contribute and I should just listen and learn. But, uh, you know, so that was one thing, I think, just that sense of whatever the, the enterprise, the notion that um, all of us who are at the table, you know, insofar as we're ready, we should be given space to contribute and we can decide, hopefully, uh, in an informed way, a thoughtful way, how when we should kind of step forward and when we should hang back. And I also think that's a really useful kind of mentoring to encourage people to speak up when really they might be reluctant and also to let them know when there are things that uh, specific expertise is actually valuable and kind of if you want to have a role in that conversation, you need to go out and further develop yourself. Technically, my first job out of college was waitressing. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I could go on for days about how much I think you learn from doing a service industry job just about how to be in the world and how to interact with people and how to respect people who are in those jobs. Um, I also learned a ton about just balancing a lot of tasks because that's basically what waitressing is <laughs> in some ways. Um, sometimes literally <laughs> and figuratively. Yeah, because when I graduated, I waitressed over the summer to save up to move to London. And I moved to London um, and got a work visa in September after I graduated, which was September of 2011. Or, sorry, 2001. <laughs> so it was September of 2001. I flew to London a week before 9-11. Wow. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting time to be abroad, and I did learn a lot from that about our country, how we're perceived in the world, things like that. Um, it was it was an interesting time. It was very interesting for me, I think, to, to not be in the United States when that happened mm -hmm. and to kind of witness it from that different perspective. But... Um, so my job there was the receptionist for an international brand licensing company. Um, so I did learn a lot about things related to private business and how that functions, because that, you know, other than waitressing, that's the only time I've worked in the private sector, um, which I think is good. So much of the conversation we're having in higher ed is about preparing students for the private sector. So understanding a little bit more about what that means and what that looks like, I think, has helped me. Um, it was an international company, so getting to, as the receptionist even, you know, connect with people from all over the world who were engaged with that business was really interesting just in terms of lear learning about different cultures and navigating those, um, you know, even just on the phone and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so it was a good experience. And then I don't know, being a receptionist, you know, I think that it's good to have those experiences of kind of you know, being on the bottom and supporting others' work. But I will say with every job I've had, the thing I've learned the most is 
you can quickly move into doing the kind of things you want to be doing if you jump in and prove you can do it. Mm-hmm. So my, my role there was definitely not limited to being a receptionist. In fact, I was really kind of the only person who knew how to use PowerPoint very well, which was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of PowerPoints, but that was fun. That was a way for me to see a lot more of what the company was doing. Which in 2001, PowerPoint was where it was at. So let's that's be honest. That yeah, was I, was like, on the, I was on the cutting edge. Yeah, that's amazing. Like they, not, nobody there had ever heard of animations. So <laughs> you were just like this whole new beast to them. They were just, oh, yeah. oh like this, she's this so exotic, talented. Yeah, this exotic American who knows how to do PowerPoint. That's funny. Well, to think about receptionists, too, let's be honest. We all know that receptionists truly hold all the power, right, in an organization in so many ways. Um, Yeah, an important thing for students to learn, and I think, you know, that you can only learn kind of getting out there. And every time I talk to a student about applying for jobs, that kind of thing, I emphasize that how you treat everyone you meet when you come in for an interview is absolutely critical and that what's happening behind the scenes is if you're rude to the receptionist the person doing the hiring is going to hear about that yep absolutely um not that that's a reason to treat everybody well i think you just should treat everybody well but but if you need an additional reason then let's go with it's going to get back to you yeah You know, it's interesting when I think about my first work experiences, even before college. So in high school, I worked at Rack's Roast Beef, which was a fast food joint, and I didn't last there very long. What that taught me was that I was not meant for fast food (laughs) by any means. And I also learned that fryers can make you smell pretty bad, right? Like fryers for fries. Uh, so, I, you know, I, there should be some good takeaways from that job. I don't think I stayed in it long enough. But when I think back on the job I had all through college, I worked at a car wash that was one of the last hand car washes in the city where I went to college. Uh, you know, we washed all the cars by hand, and I worked there for four years. And we started at 6 a.m. every day. So as a freshman in college, I had to be at work at 6 a.m. in the morning, hand washing cars until about 10 o'clock in the morning when I showered and then went to class. But when I look back on that, I think about the work ethic that it instilled in me. And I still get up at 4.30 every morning because I see that as a jumpstart on my day and being able to really fit some things in before I actually have to get to the office. And it just instilled that work ethic in me. I think the diversity of personalities I met, so we had policemen and firemen who could come and get their vehicles washed for free. And so we would interact with them because we're hand washing the cars. So they're standing there talking to us the whole time. We had businessmen come in, we had faculty, from the university. We had students just like us as well. And then I worked with mainly other college students, many of whom were different by so many means than I was. And we had to work these shifts, oftentimes early morning shifts together. And it just taught me about diversity of personalities, getting along with individuals, being able to just have a conversation and really code switching because the way I would interact with the police officers was completely different than the way that I would often interact with the college students I worked with or the faculty who would come in. And that's translated really well, I feel like, into the roles we have today, even though it's been so many years, obviously, since I've worked at that car wash. But 
it's really helped me think about how we approach our work and we often are working across difference. We're working with community partners, we're working with faculty, we're working with students. And even though the message is the same, the delivery often is different. And so mm -hmm. I feel like that, that was instilled in me early on at a car wash of all places. So one of the things I was thinking about is we could do, and I'm not sure what we'd call it, but like um, something to do with pop culture. What I was thinking would be fun is that every time you and I would have to think of how something in pop culture relates to community engagement. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh-huh. I think that would be pretty awesome. Okay. I'm trying to think what that would be. I know, I know, I know. I was trying to think about that too. And I don't even know if I have a concrete example. So that's not very helpful. Yeah. The interesting thing, like pop culture wise, I just finished reading a book called Dumplin' by Julie mm -hmm. Murphy. It's a YA book. So Dumplin's about a girl who is overweight by, I guess, standards of what whoever puts those standards in place, but she self-identifies as overweight. And the book's about her navigating her life as people expect her to be as the funny friend, as the person who is cast out on the shadows, but she kind of takes it back over by running for beauty queen of her town. And so it totally flips the script on what girls like her should do and are expected to do. And mm -hmm. I just found it a really interesting read. And I think the connections I walked away from that is being able to give a voice to individuals who otherwise feel like they don't, or society has already put on others what they think, how they think they should act, stereotypes, mm -hmm. etc. And so what I took away from that book, I guess related to our work, is that it's important for us to be able to provide platforms for individuals who feel like they're on the fringes. And oftentimes I feel like even though we've moved into second generation practitioner scholars and second generation scholars of this work in community engagement, I do feel like some individuals are still on the fringe. And it just reminded me how important it is for organizations like ours to provide a voice and a platform for those individuals to do their work and to make their voice matter in a way mm -hmm. that sometimes I think they feel like others aren't listening. And so that was something that, that I unexpectedly took away from Dumplin', which is a YA novel and is in the progress of being turned into a Disney movie. Interestingly, I just finished Shrill by Lindy West. Are you familiar with her? I'm not. Well, you should be. She's phenomenal. She used to write for Jezebel and some other online platforms. Um, and she has really taken the stage as an advocate for body positive things. She self-identifies, she would say fat. That's a big part of how she describes it. I feel like we've been conditioned to be so PC on all terms that yeah. for me, I'm like, is it overweight? What's the right term? And she's like, it's fat. That's what I am. And so let's start from there and have a discussion. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, so similar. But I think also thinking about a wider variety of what diversity means. In the class I'm teaching, we were just talking about diversity this week. And one of the things we were talking about is age, race, ability, disability, religion, sex, things along those lines, gender for diversity. But what about weight, attractiveness? 
those kinds of things that have a, a lot of impact on people's stereotypes, how they make decisions, whose voice is heard, who gets hired for things, who's seen as a leader, but really haven't yet come to the forefront as things we're um, recognizing in our society have that kind of an impact. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, there's our pop culture corner. Yay. <laughs> is, that, is that what we're going to call it? Pop culture corner <laughs> with Emily and JR. Yes. Listen to us struggle to relate the things we like about pop culture to this field. <laughs> you know, I was reflecting on your conversation with Lena and my conversation with Andrew this mm-hmm. month. And stories continue to come up and really the stories of where we began. So I thought a lot about that and how we can apply just everyday teachings that we learn from not only pop culture like we just did, but even old positions we may have had in our lives that don't necessarily connect directly to higher education, but have taught us much about life and how to just work with people, which I think is really important in this field, you know, especially community engagement in higher education, to be able to code switch, to be able to just have conversations uh, with individuals and have to wear many hats. We've been really excited for the response to the podcast so far. Lots of listens, lots of mentions. Um, We're still interested in people contacting us with ideas. We've gotten some great ideas. You can email us at podcast at compact.org. Uh, you can contact us on social media with hashtag CompactNationPod. Need to plug iTunes, though. We want to move up in those iTunes rankings and get in front of more people. So if anybody listening is on iTunes, subscribe, review us, rate us, hopefully in a good way. Um, tell us what you think, that kind of thing. We want to keep expanding the audience and bringing more people to the table. And share it with friends and colleagues. Absolutely. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. I wanted to say one more thing. Oh, I felt we needed to address the pig situation. Oh, yeah. Habiba, I love Habiba. Okay, I agree. However, I definitely have heard from a few people who were just more along the lines of, what the heck was that? <laughs> yeah, I will say it doesn't totally sound like a pig. I had a few people who were like, what is that noise? <laughs> and what is a habiba? And I'm like, it's a pet pig, and that's a pig snorting. Yeah, so it's a pet pig that, it's not Andrew's pet pig, but it's a pet pig Andrew likes and uh, wanted to involve in the podcast. So. If you think it's weird, you have only our esteemed Prez to blame. And Habiba does listen to every episode, and those reactions are authentic. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Habiba. Thanks, Habiba.